How are you? Hope you've enjoyed yourself. Have you all had fun this weekend so far? It's such a pandery question, isn't it? What are you going to say? No? Of course you're going to say yes. Um, I'm Evan Smith. Who said no? Get out of here. You go ahead, get up. Um, I'm Evan Smith, the editor-in-chief and CEO of the Texas Tribune. It is truly uh, my great honor to be up here in front of you and to be on this campus again. We are elated to have the Texas Tribune Festival for 2015 fully underway. Great sessions this morning. We're excited about the afternoon. We're excited about tomorrow. And I thank you all for being here. I thank once again the University of Texas at Austin, South by Southwest, and our presenting sponsor, Walmart, for making it possible for us to do this amazing weekend's long event. Please give them all a big hand. Let me tell you about how this session is going to go. I am blessedly not a part of it. I'm just going to get to watch, but I'm introducing it and our speakers in a second, our speaker and our uh, moderator. Um, little different. We're going to have 40 to 45 minutes of conversation. And rather than have questions from all of you with microphone stands, in the back, there are volunteers who will have cards. We're going to ask if you have a question to get up, get a card, write your question on the card, hand it back to a volunteer. Those cards will magically make their way to Emily Ramshaw, our editor, who will in turn get them up to Abby. Probably be another step in that process. And those questions will be asked by Abby, your questions by Abby of the leader. We'll go for a full hour. Does that make sense? So if you have a question, you go in the back, get a card, write that question on a card, hand it back to a volunteer. All right? Uh, if you are uh, tweeting this event, at Nancy Pelosi, at Texas Trib Abbey, at Texas Tribune, hashtag TTF. If you're not tweeting, please turn your phone off. If your phone remains on, you can also be part of our Snapchat live story. One of the many great things about this festival weekend is that we are uh, partnering on, with Snapchat on a live story that allows people all over this campus to participate, uh, posting photos and videos, and to tell the story of uh, this festival through that wonderful social media application. So consider, please, uh, uh, doing that. All right. Uh, it is now my pleasure to introduce our first national keynote of the afternoon. When we set out to build the program each year, many of you have been here for previous programs, you know we look to land as many big names from across the country as possible to augment the more familiar but still big enough folks we land from Texas. There have been few, if any, as big as our next speaker. The Honorable Nancy Pelosi is the Democratic leader of the U.S. House of Representatives for the 114th Congress. From 2007 to 2011, she served as Speaker of the House, the first woman to do so in U.S. history. Counting her previous stint as House Democratic Whip, she has led House Democrats for more than 12 years. For 28 years, she's represented California's 12th Congressional District in Congress. Leader Pelosi will be interviewed today by my colleague, Abby Livingston, the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief of the Texas Tribune. Abby, who joined the Tribune's staff less than a year ago from the Capitol Hill newspaper Roll Call, is a native of Fort Worth and a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. Please join me in welcoming Leader Pelosi and Abby Livingston. Leader, this is an enormous honor to bring you to campus. 14 years ago, I sat in that balcony at freshman orientation, and I never would have imagined that I would be bringing you here this day. So, thank, thank you, you. Um, and welcome. So, one of the things that most intrigued me in my research process for this is that um, I uh, this was one of the easiest asks I've ever had in 10 years of journalism, getting you to Texas. And it's just become really clear to me you get a kick out of the Lone Star State. And so can you tell me why the leader from San Francisco seems to just like Texas so much? Well, thank you very much, Abby, for your kind words, your invitation. I thank Evan Smith, editor-in-chief, for his hospitality, congratulate. Texas Tribune Festival for such a remarkable, remarkable weekend and occasion. And uh, again, thank uh, your president, Fenway's of University uh, UT Austin for the hospitality today. Evan didn't say that you're a third generation Longhorn. How about that? Abby is a third generation Longhorn. 
Well, I love Texas. It's great. It has vitality. You know, I don't have to explain to you why it's such a great place. But in addition to that, I have three grandchildren who live in Houston, and they're a wonderful magnet uh, to Texas. One of the most fun things we did together was when I took them to a UT Texas game uh, against um, Texas State. It was pretty exciting. And uh, uh, so in any event, uh, I have many reasons to come, uh, but I have plenty of reasons to enjoy every visit to Texas. So thank you for this invitation. While I'm here, I'll also be here at the invitation of President George Herbert Walker Bush to participate in his conference on Tuesday in Houston, Thousand Points of Light Conference, and I'm very honored by that invitation as well. He had invited me previously, and I spoke at his uh, library and, and School of Public Policy on a President's Day, which was the same time as my 25th anniversary in Congress. So politically, officially, personally, I love to come to Texas. Well, so I'm sure everyone in this audience is wanting to talk about the House Republican mayhem. But yeah. before we get to that point, uh, is to hear your point of view on that. Mm -hmm. I um, wanted to set it up just to explain an undercurrent of contrast from my perch at the Hill. And so it, is, it took me a while to understand your place at the Capitol, which is you're, you're, you're sort of the, the operator. And when you count votes, you have them. And it's a steady drumbeat when you put your full weight behind something, whether it's the health care law or the Iran deal. And it clicked with me when I had more than a few Republican sources say to me, I really don't like Nancy Pelosi's policies, but gosh, I wish she was on our side. <laughs> and so this is my question. Where does this come from? Is this part of being the daughter of the Baltimore mayor? Well, it comes from the urgency of the issues before us. My motivation for being involved in politics and government is that I have five children, one of whom lives in Texas, and um, it always bothered me as I was raising my children, seeing the opportunities that they have and their friends, that one in five children in America lives in poverty, that one in five children in America goes to sleep hungry at night. How could it be in this the greatest country that ever existed in the history of the world? And so um, that urgency just drives what I do. And that is to build consensus within my own caucus, uh, establish priorities that are in furtherance of having our country live up to its promise of equal opportunity for all. Uh, the, I consider myself sort of a weaver with a loom where I'm taking all the threads of my members and the strengths that they bring, all many very different geographically, generationally, gender-wise, ethnically, philosophically, and finding our common ground together. So it's not that I am imposing on them, it's what we agree to together, and we may not always have unanimity, but we do have consensus. That's kind of what I learned growing up. I also learned uh, when I was born, my father was a member of Congress from Baltimore. When I was in first grade, he became the mayor. And when I went away to college, he was still the mayor of Baltimore. And the one thing I learned in growing up in that household was you have to have the votes. It's all interesting. It's all inspirational. It's all motivational. But you have to have the votes. And um, so I learned how to count. <laughs> I, mean, I, I always love to tell a story of a, of a uh, little boy who's in a classroom and the teacher says to him, what is one and one? He says, two. She says, what is two and two? He says, four. She said, good. He said, not good, perfect. <laughs> so that's what we strive for, uh, to get what we need uh, to complete the, to have the oneness, the integrity uh, to get the job done and find common ground in doing so, to reach across for common ground, and um, that's our responsibility. Well, and so what intrigues me is in your, your book that you wrote, you, you, you say something along the lines of, it wasn't expected, you were the only female of six, is that correct? Yeah. Seven children, six boys, one girl. Oh, I was the youngest. One of my brothers died when he was a little boy, so I was raised with five older brothers, but with the idea that I was 
the seventh child, the only girl. And no, it was not. I didn't have any interest in politics, to tell you the honest truth. I just wanted to be a 50s teenager, rock around the clock, Elvis Presley. <laughs> I wanted a normal life. Um, but because, well, we were raised in a very lovely atmosphere of public service and uh, meeting the needs of people. And that was a lovely thing. But it wasn't what I thought I would be doing because I was basically a very shy person and I didn't see myself going before an audience or putting myself on the line. That came later. <laughs> um, so you talked about counting the votes, and there are at least four Texans trying to count votes right now in the event Paul Ryan does not run for speaker, and they're thinking about running for speaker. Um, it's just, it's a very interesting time as a reporter, but it's very jarring to be at the Capitol. Um, David Axelrod stole my question word for word yesterday. So I, I'm going to say his question, and then I'm going to rephrase it, which is, what in the hell is happening in Washington? <laughs> uh, so I'm going to change it to this. Say, just stretch of the imagination, say you're Nancy Pelosi Republican. Could you herd these cats, or is this an ungovernable group of members of Congress? Well, I hope that it's not ungovernable, but we do have some uh, concerns, I'll be very honest with you. The speaker's stepping aside because he refused to shut down government is a very big deal. And it's sad. It's quite sad for the institution, certainly for the speaker. I wish he had not. We don't agree on many issues, but we do agree on the governance of our country. You fight it out, you come to a conclusion, uh, uh, you go forward. And this, this, is, a, this is a jolt. Uh, what the Republicans decide to do about choosing the next person they nominate for leader will be interesting to see. You say four from Texas? We think. I, I Could I'm be still... more. Could be more. But um, I'm not sure. I don't want to be the one to tell you. I'm not sure any of those will be the one. <laughs> but as I said to David Axelrod yesterday in Illinois, I'm the last person to ask about what's going on in the Republican caucus. But we have to come to some conclusion and has to come to conclusion soon because we have the work of the people to do. Now, if you don't believe in governance, as some in that, on that side of the aisle do, then you don't, it doesn't matter to you that we're not getting our work done. But if you do believe in governance, I mean, I'm not saying government, we, the debate on how much government we should have, how much should be federal, how much is state, how much is local, is the ongoing debate in our country, a legitimate philosophical debate. But no governance, shut down government. That harkens back to what President George Washington, our patriarch, when he left office, he cautioned against political parties that were at war with their own government. Does that sound familiar? So I keep saying to my Republican friends, and I do have Republican friends, <laughs> take back your party. You cannot let a small percentage of the Republican caucus in the Congress who are anti-governance, anti-science, anti, well, of course, anti-Barack Obama, it's a given thing. But you can't let them be tossing out a speaker because they, he won't shut down government. And he won't shut down government because they want him to defund Planned Parenthood. How does this all make sense? So I'm hopeful and prayerful, really, that they can come to some consensus. But there has to be some consensus that the Congress comes to, because the, the speakership is a very powerful position. It's the third highest president. President Bush, W. Bush, used to say to me, you're number three, president himself, Dick Cheney. And then I was three as Speaker of the House. It's the third highest ranking position in the country, second in line to the presidency, the head of, this, of a branch of government in the balance, checks and balances of our Constitution. It's a very big and really a bigger job than president of the Senate because it's constitutional and, again, is lined for succession. So uh, immediately in line for succession. So this is a, a responsibility that has to be filled. 
It's not Speaker of the Republican Caucus, it's Speaker of the House. And hopefully it will happen soon. And why it has to happen soon is that we have some deadlines that are racing toward us. By the end of October, October 31st, the Highway Trust Fund is over. We have to pass a bill to reauthorize all of that in a matter of two weeks. By November 3rd, the full faith and credit of the United States of America expires. We have to pass legislation to lift the seal. We don't have to. The Constitution says the full faith and credit of the United States cannot be in doubt. But as some of what's going on in Washington demands, we'll have to take that vote. By December 11th, the whole debate on keeping government open is over. So we're talking days, weeks, two months, less, less time than two months, where these decisions have to be made, in addition to some where they're overdue, the XM Bank overdue, 9-11 um, health workers overdue. This is a, a list of uh, initiatives that are long overdue that need to be reauthorized. And uh, issues that relate to Medicare Part B premiums, people with disabilities, really, our responsibilities have to be met, and they have to be met legislatively. God knows if the president did them by executive order, they wouldn't like that at all. So you, you lead into my next question about those four issues, XM, um, the highway, the debt ceiling, the continue, continuing yes. resolution. What is your role in getting those things passed? Like, can you explain to this audience yeah. what you do to make that happen? Well, all the transportation bill, transportation infrastructure, if the public has any interest in government, it knows that building roads and highways and bridges and broadband and infrastructure for our country is a public responsibility. It could be public-private, but it has to be driven by public policy, by tax policy, by appropriations, think a, a public role, a strong public role in which Congress plays a major role. So in, it's not rarely been partisan. Everybody agrees. We need to build, invest in our infrastructure of our country. But in the last few years, during the presidency of President Obama, where they have objected to anything he suggests, this has fallen by the by. And now we are, we're putting forth a bill that is not up to the challenges that we face, but nonetheless something that would continue the authorization of the Highway Trust Fund. So we'll have to try to find our boldest bipartisan place. But most of the members on both sides of the aisle, I speak about the Republicans now because that's where uh, the obstruction is coming from, they know that we have to do infrastructure. They, they live in their districts, they represent their constituents, and this is what people expect us to do. It's a job creator from day one, promotes commerce, gets people to and from work, from school and the rest, improves the quality of life, the quality of the air our children breathe, it is so important in so many ways to our economy and to our safety. It's a safety issue about security of bridges and the rest. So I'm optimistic that we will be able to do something. I'm not greatly pleased that it's going to be what the challenge really is that we need to meet. But if it takes us down the road, then that gives us an opportunity to live, to fight another day, to get what we, you know, the whole world is changing, driverless cars, all kinds of things, and we're still kind of thinking in old ways and not entrepreneurially. But that's what we have to do. Uh, on a debt ceiling, that's more, that debt ceiling is an obligation of our country. And the last time we took the vote to uphold the full faith and credit of the United States of America, 199 Republicans voted no. So to your question, you said, what is our, my role in this? Well, my role is to find common ground on transportation. We must. We only have two weeks. It's probably not going to be anything I would have written or even smile about, but it will get the, take us down the road. The, and that's what we'll have to do. The full faith and credit, the last time we took the vote on that, 199 Republicans voted against honoring the full faith and credit of the United States of America. Only 28 voted for it, including Speaker Boehner. Only 28. 
we supplied all of the other votes for it. And so that's my role, is to supply the other, other votes. The um, uh, XM, we, we had a parliamentary maneuver the other may I, day. May I the XM Bank is a federal agency that helps fund business, gives them loans overseas to export products. That's a good explanation. It's called uh, Export-Import Bank. And it is, uh, facilitates our ability to export our products abroad by providing funding loans, etc. It makes money for the for the federal government, but more importantly than that, it helps facilitate uh, our businesses. And some people will say, "Well, it's Boeing, it's GE." No, it, they they have plenty of options. It's a lot of the small businesses and moderate-sized businesses that supply them or want to export themselves overseas that need uh, the backing of the Exim Bank. It's a job creator. It brings money to the Treasury. It's really not been a question, except now the Republicans are saying they're not for it. Some Republicans are saying they're not for it. But 42 of them joined us the other day, on Friday, for a parliamentary move, which will enable it to come to the floor. Their colleagues were unhappy with them, but nonetheless, it was a parliamentary option that was available to us, and we used it, and we'll pass it on October, whatever the Monday is, 26th, the last Monday of the month. It's funny, because you can only do the parliamentary move on a certain Friday, and you can only do the vote on a certain Monday, and, and we fit right in there. The bigger issue, because it, it has so many consequences, is the December 11th uh, vote, and that is to keep government open for the next year. This vote we just took, where the speaker said, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm not shutting down government, was only to take us to December 11th. On December 11th, we have the entire budget of the, of the Congress uh, on the line. And our, our role as Democrats is to make sure that what we do creates jobs, improves paychecks, you know, all of that in a fiscally sound way. And you can't do that unless you invest in people. So this is the battle of the budget. The battle of the budget is the, really the, if we did nothing else in Congress, how you decide the budget has ramifications more than anything. Do you invest in infrastructure? Do you invest in education? What, how do you do tax policy that gives, that gives um, opportunity and credits and all the rest for, uh, for renewable energy or for just other research and development, modernizing it and the rest. But if you, and this is really the main fight, and then we can go into some specifically, if you believe, as many of the Republicans do, and I don't ever paint them all with the same brush, and I always say to my Republican friends, as I said, take back your party, take back your party. This is not the grand old party. This is a fringe element driving the party. But if you believe, as has been the philosophy largely of the Republican Party, that trickle-down economics is the way to create jobs in our country and promote prosperity for all, then that's what they would give tax cuts to the wealthy and special interest. We don't regret, we don't begrudge anyone their success or their wealth. In fact, everyone aspires to it. But the fact is, if it, that philosophy says tax cuts at the high end, it trickles down, it could benefit people and that would be good. If it doesn't, so be it, that's the free market. On the other side is the middle class economics, which says the middle class is the driving engine of our economy. And unless the middle class, and we are a consumer economy, unless the middle class has consumer confidence, we're never going to really have the success in our economy that we need, despite many indicators that are very improved over the past six years. If you don't have stronger paychecks, more secure jobs, consumer confidence for the middle class, uh, incentives for small businesses. That's where jobs are created, capital is formed, and the rest of that. So we're talking about the middle bubbling up 
and lifting people into the middle class. So that is essentially the debate. So if you say we should spend our money, because it's an expenditure when you give a tax break, your cost, it's costing money. So we're going to spend our money giving tax breaks to the high end, and we want to reduce the deficit, you're not going to have too much money to invest in education, infrastructure, and some of the other initiatives that grow the economy, strengthen the middle class, reduce the deficit, creating jobs. And, um, and if I just may say, since President Obama took office, I think it's important to note, when he took office nearly seven years ago, stood on the Capitol steps and asked for uh, swift, bold action now, a few weeks later, actually eight days later, we gave him the recovery, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. But when he stood on those steps, the deficit was $1.4 trillion. It's now under $500 billion. We still want it to go lower, but it's 70% lower. Unemployment was around 10%, it's now around 5%. We still want better paying jobs and the rest, but nonetheless have it. The stock market was reaching for 7,000, now it's reaching, has reached 17,000. 10,000 points different. Auto industry was on its heels, and now it is thriving and competitive because of initiatives that were taken by the President and the Democratic Congress. And uh, the list goes on. 17 million more Americans have health care. And the private sector, large part of it because of the auto industry, part of it because of tax incentives, and most of it because of the ingenuity of the private sector, this is like the 67th straight month of private sector job growth. So there are many good indicators, but it hasn't hit home with middle, many middle class people because they still are scarred by what happened in 2008 in terms of their job security, their, house, their homes were underwater, their pensions were in doubt, they didn't know whether they could send their kids uh, to college. Uh, it, it, it really, they were living off their savings, some of them. So it, we need more consumer confidence to really turn the economy around so many more people can participate in, in the prosperity of our country. So the debate is between trickle-down, middle class, and um, again, all of the decisions that flow from that. So I, I'm a political reporter at heart and I covered house races last cycle. Mm -hmm. And um, first of all, my I have a tough question and then an easier question. First one is, why are there 188 seats? And that's something I wrestled personally with trying to understand what happened last cycle. Is that the hard question? That's or the, the hard question. question. <laughs> why, why do you have the smallest caucus? And well, we have, uh, no, I mean, uh, in their biggest day, the Republicans have never had as many as we had. Uh, when we had the majority in okay. Congress. But in the last election, again, a third of the electorate voted. A third of the electorate voted. As we observe the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act this year, and recall and are inspired by the sacrifices that people made, the, the Selma Bridge March was a bridge to the ballot. Martin Luther King said, the ballot, the ballot, the ballot, legislation, 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 your life, your life, your life. So the connection was never really made to people to say, this is about me and what I have to make a choice as to what is in my interest. Part of it was because of the role of big money in politics, and we absolutely, positively must overturn Citizens United. It's absolutely a must. What's being done on that? And in that regard, the you know our founders—they sacrificed everything: their lives, their liberty, their sacred honor for democracy, a government of the many, not a government of the money. Is that a Supreme Court issue? It's a Supreme Court issue, but it, it can be an uh, a, um, an organizing and mobilizing issue in the country. People know that that's not right, that there can be endless, undisclosed, dark, special interest money suffocating the airways during elections, not necessarily representing the facts. And so people say, well, Jesus, this doesn't appeal to me. 
why should I go vote? Now, again, I started by taking responsibility for us not making with a, thoroughly enough the connection between actions taken in Congress and the lives of people. And part of our challenge is to overcome uh, the oppressive nature of big money in politics. We must change that, but we can't agonize, we have to organize. So they have the money, we'll, we'll have enough, some money, we'll never have what they have, which is endless, and we will uh, mobilize the people uh, on behalf of issues that relate to them. And believe me when I say this, I almost don't care if people vote Democratic or Republican, as long as they make their voices heard about what is important to them. And the people to whom they give their vote know that they care about job security for the middle class, bigger paychecks, uh, opportunities for education and the rest. Because it's not about Democrats or Republicans, it's about our country. And if we're gonna be number one, we have to, uh, innovation begins in the classroom. And so again, it's all related to the strength of the families, the strength of our country. And again, these debates never used to be this far apart as they are now. Uh, but they have a big advantage uh, with the endless money. Um, and so my other question was, I was never planning to ask this until yesterday and I talked to a Republican who is very worried about the speaker issue on their side and the fundraising implications and the structural implications. And this Republican, I asked point blank, is the House in play? You need to get 30 seats. Yeah. Do you think that you could have the gavel in 18 months? I think the Democrats could have the gavel in 18 months. Uh, the, here's the thing. Uh, I'm always optimistic. You have to be. You're driven by, you know, these five, one in five children every morning. So I pray for at nights what I don my suit of armor for every day when I go to work. But the, um, and when we won in 05, 06, in 05, nobody thought we were going to win. We had a plan, and I was optimistic, but even our most enthusiastic supporters would say, maybe it's going to take two elections, 06, 08. And I said, no, we have to do it in 06. Two years is a long time in the life of a child. We have to do it in 06. Even then, until like a few weeks before the election, I wasn't sure that we would win. I was determined that we would, but I wasn't sure. This time, one year out, in addition to our mobilization and our money raising and our messaging and our management of all of this and our recruiting of wonderful candidates, something is lifting us up. We have always outraised the Republicans in terms of the reportable money governed by the Federal Election Commission. They always outraise us on the dark side. So they may have a... <laughs> well, that's... Oh, I was... I didn't know that was funny. <laughs> but, but in any case, um, it's even some pollsters are saying to us, I see a prospect of a wave. Now, I think, like right now today, you won't tell anybody I said this, I see probably easily winning half the seats, maybe two-thirds, with what we have in place. Because I don't count sheep at night. I, after I pray for those one and five, it's the New England, Middle Atlantic. What about Texas 23? <laughs> Come to that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and so just on the one district at a time, I feel pretty good about where we are on a path. But that doesn't take into consideration any lift that we could get apart from our mano a mano, one district at a time. Very important to us is the re-election of Picayego in Texas. Um, well, I come here a good deal attract resources, you know, get resources. Everything we attract in Texas stays in Texas because I believe in Texas. I think that the beautiful diversity of this state, the just being in this university and all that it offers to the, the country in terms of technology and science and engineering and the, you know, and the Anderson and Houston, you know, well, I could go on and on. I, I won't go any further because then I will have lead, left some things off the list. But Texas is 
fabulous. It hasn't reached all of its potential in terms of its impact on the rest of the country in a positive way. <laughs> so we are fully invested in um, and Picayego and perhaps some other races. But let me just say this about Picayego. You heard me say earlier, we have an obligation to find common ground. We, we want to work together. We can't have it all our own way, all that. He's really, by experience, by temperament, by being a Texan, a, a kind of a perfect person to be in the Congress because he sees the full spectrum of ideas, is respectful of it, sees how to bring things together. That's what he did in the state legislature. He was a very important um, factor for us in bringing people together without regard uh, to party. And of course, he was there for middle-class economics versus trickle-down um, economics. So he's a very high priority for us, and we'll do quite a bit here. And, and he, there's, this is really indigenous in, in Texas, really indigenous. The support that he has is quite remarkable. One of your issues with not being in control is that all over the country you have states like Texas where they've been redistricted in the, after yeah. the 2010 wave. This is a stat I just looked up the other night. Wendy Davis lost the governor's race last November by 38%, which was considered a pretty much of a pretty bad loss. <laughs> Democrats, Unfortunately. so we can assume there are 38% Democrats maybe in the state. Democrats in the delegation, 31%. Yeah. So there are even fewer Democrats in the delegation than what Wendy Davis won. What is your party doing nationally and in Texas to draw better maps? Well, the, the most important thing we're doing right now is to work with the state legislative races uh, to, first of all, I support commission redistricting. That's what we have in California. Take it away from the legislature. This would be very important. It's hard to do, and some states are saying, well, I'll do it if they do it, but I'm not having them have <laughs> legislative and we're doing a commission. But I think that that's where the public wants us to be. It removes any suspicion. We had commission redistricting in California, and after the redistricting, we have a very democratic state, democratic legislature, House and Senate, governor. After the nonpartisan, Republican-written commission, we picked up four seats. Now, if our state legislature had given us four seats, they would have said, oh my God, it was so political. But it was an objective redistricting. And I don't think Democrats should ever fear an objective redistricting, nor should the American people. It'll be the way the people want it to be. I mean, the, the numbers will speak for themselves. So anyway, having said that, what more places we'd like to get commissioned, even where we have the majority and can write the districts, just because I think that's a better place to be, but A. B, in the meantime, uh, we're working with the state legislatures to elect, and in a very targeted way, to elect um, members of state legislatures in crucial places to make the redistricting fairer, uh, fairer. And we have some court cases going on right now. In fact, in Florida, the courts just ruled in our favor because the disparity is even worse in Florida. We, the president carried it twice, and we're like two to one Republican to Democrat in the, in the, in the Congress because of the state legislature. But it, it, is a, it, it is a challenge. It's not an insurmountable obstacle to our winning in the next election. You know Texas got the way it was because of an out-of-order redistricting. You know, it's supposed to be every 10 years. And then one of your friends here decided to do a, a, inter, a, a, a mid decade redistricting picked up like seven seats for the Republicans. That, that when it went to the Justice Department, the professionals, the uh, Civil Rights Division that's supposed to approve it, didn't approve it, but they were overridden by the other side of the Justice Department. And so it never had to meet the scrutiny of meeting the, the Civil Rights Act. So there's some cases here too, but really very active and timely, and maybe within a matter of weeks we'll know what's happening in uh, Florida and in Virginia.
that could make a difference of four or five seats in those two states. And then, um, and then, as I say, we're looking down the road past 06, 16 to uh, 18 and 20 in terms of legislative races. Um, everyone's holding their breath. And governor's races, which are central to all of this as well. Everyone in politics is holding their breath over the vice president. Do you have any help? Can you help us read the tea leaves? He's close to Congress. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> That's what I would say. I have no idea. And I love him, and I talk to him regularly about issues and legislation and the rest. He's never brought it up with me. So I have no idea uh, what his, I can't, I can't help you at all in that regard. I can say that we were very proud of the Democratic performance in the debate uh, the other night. It was, um, it, was, um, it was pretty exciting to see a, a, a discussion of ideas and one idea better than the other, or we all share the same idea, but I can do it better, that kind of thing, because that's really a judgment that the public has to make and they want to see. So I, would, I thought the contrast, may I be a louder partisan moment, the contrast between the Republican debate of, I don't know what, uh, but it's, it's indicative of what, in, in the Congress right now, we're on a path to progress on our side that we want them to join us. How do we make progress for the American people? Not partisan progress, America, progress for the American people. They're in a calendar of chaos. And I don't think many of them can tell you what's going to happen from one day to the next. And I don't think in the Republican presidential debates, anybody walks away saying, I'm for so-and-so because of these three policy issues that he or she is going to make sure happens, apart from being negative about um, what happens on our side. And uh, so you're, you're a big advocate of women in public office. Yeah. But um, what I... <laughs> <laughs> The last woman to be elected to a full term in Congress from Texas was Kay Granger in 1996. There have been open Republican seats and there have been open Democratic seats by then. I, I've been covering this for about five years. I haven't seen any women run. What's going on in Texas? Well, we're very proud of, of uh, Sheila Jackson Lee and we're very proud of Eddie Bernice Johnson. Eddie Bernice, she would be a chairman if we were in the majority. She's the ranking. Democrat, uh, the top Democrat uh, on the uh, Science, uh, Space, and Technology Committee of the Congress, which is a very important committee and very important to Texas. Uh, but uh, we have to do more to get more. I, I, here's what I believe. And I, when I came to Congress, there were 23 women, Democrats and Republicans, 12 Democrats, 11 Republicans, out of 435 people, uh, members, only 23 women. I made a decision in my resources I could bring to the table that we would increase that. On our side, we've increased it by five times. We're up to like 65 Democratic women from 12 when I came, and they're up to maybe 17 or so, they've, 17 or 18 Republican women. They haven't increased as much. But we have to have more. And this is an absolute fact that I'm going to tell you. It's not an opinion, it's a guarantee. You reduce the role of money in politics, and you will elect more women to public office, more young people, more minorities. It is an obstacle. It is an obstacle. How many times people just say to me, "I just, you know, I, I just can't undertake that." That uh, it's not necessarily just a problem for what they need to raise. That's not the point. The point is what will be raised against them. And with no fidelity to fact or decency, how they will be, you know, people say to me, how do you take the criticism? I said, I don't care about them. If I weren't effective, they wouldn't even be caring about what I do. And besides, it's the one in five children. So that's what, that's what I care about. I don't care about them. But other people, but women say, you know, I, I don't want to come to a situation where they have so described me on TV that my children are coming home from school crying and my neighbors are crossing the street when they see me walking down the street because they have described me in such a way. That's just not right. And no wonder people don't have confidence in government if mostly of what they see is what happens during campaigns. So there has to be, a, you increase, I should have said it this way, 
you increase the level of civility and reduce the role of money, you'll have more women in minority. But I always tell women, it is so, know your power in this. Be ready for any opportunity that comes along. I never thought I was running for, as I told you earlier, rock around the clock, poodle on a skirt, pinch belt, Peter Pan collar. I was, that's who I was. And um, then I got married and had five children, almost to the day in six years. So I love engaging in debate with my colleagues about family planning and subjects like that. I think I know a little more than they do. <laughs> Although, what they say to me is when I fight them on, uh, and I'm a very devout Catholic, I, I love my faith, I feel blessed by it, I'm um, observant of that, but I don't share the view of the church on an issue relating to women's right to choose. And so one day one of them got up on the floor, and then when I get up to speak, you know, I got my five kids, six years, you know, what do you have? <laughs> they say, Nancy Pelosi thinks she knows more about having babies than the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of what we're dealing with. But I don't mean to confine what we need in Congress in terms of women to women's that, issues that relate to women's right to choose. Sure. But we're talking about our national security, our economic security, our academic success, our entrepreneurial spirit. Women have so much to bring to the table. And gentlemen, I'm not saying it's better than what the men bring. I'm just saying the beauty is in the mix. The diversity of opinion is stronger. It's more valid. It's more sustainable. And it inspires people who see it. If, if you know, you're a young mom uh, trying to balance home and work, and I'm in awe of women who do that, uh, my own daughters, uh, and you see someone who has shares your experience at the table making the decision, that's inspiring, and that's encouraging. Um, when I, I, I never thought I was running, and I was active in the California Democrat Party, in fact, I, I chaired it, and I thought that was the greatest thing. I was the chair of the biggest Democratic Party in the country, and here I was. And then this opportunity came to run for Congress, which I never sought, never wanted, Again, I'm the shy one behind the scenes promoting other candidates. And um, my, four of my kids were in college. They were very close in age, as I said. Four were in college, and one was going to be a senior in high school when this election was going to take place in the summer. So I went to my daughter, Alexandra, who, she's a filmmaker. Actually, she loves Austin because she followed George W. Bush here. She wrote her movie, South by Southwest. It was premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Governor Perry gave a party in her honor that night. Can you imagine all that? Anyway, <laughs> but she has her own life. Anyway, um, <laughs> I said to her, uh, Alexandra, Mommy has a chance to um, run for Congress. Uh, I don't know if I will or not because it would be better if I had one more year if you were in college instead of going into senior year in high school. So I want to know what you, what you think. Any answer is fine. I love my life. You know, I'm active in the community, here with you and dad and this and that. Or if I run, and if I win, I'll be gone like three nights a week and, you know, there are breaks, Thanksgiving, Christmas, this, this, this. So um, any answer that you have, I'm happy with, from the bottom of my heart. To which she said, Mother, which I knew I was in trouble right away. Mother, get a life. Now, this was, this was 28 years ago, and I had never heard that expression before. Get a life? What teenage girl wouldn't want her mother gone three nights a week? <laughs> so I got a life. I mean, an additional life. I had a beautiful life. <laughs> but, it, but I never intended to run. I certainly never intended to be in the leadership. But other people came to me just as they came to say, run. And this is my message to the women, though. Be ready. Be ready. If you have any... And it doesn't mean you want to run for office, but in case the opportunity presents itself. And so women always say to me, what would you do? What advice do you have to young women or young out of the kitchen? I mean, I went from the kitchen to the Congress, from housewife to house speaker. Uh, this, you know, 
as I said, when you have five children under six, you don't even wash your face in a given day, <laughs> much less think about being the Speaker of the House. But the, um, but just know what you believe in, what motivates you, whether it's about, what is your purpose? My daughter, Christine, who does these uh, boot camps for people who are not profit, what is your purpose? What do you know about it? People respect your judgment if they see your knowledge on the subject. Own it. Then have a plan on how you think you can engage other people. So you go out there, you have a vision, you have a, a knowledge and judgment, you have a plan, thinking strategically about how to improve the situation. And as you articulate that, you will attract support. I totally guarantee that. But the most important advice is to totally be yourself. Don't model yourself off of anybody else, however excellent you say. We cannot, we all want to be Ann Richards, right? <laughs> but that, that's not what it is. You know, it's be your authentic, sincere self because authenticity is what people respond to the most. What's in your head, they're impressed by. What's in your heart is what moves them and let them know who you are. But always take inventory. Where I am I personally, professionally, you know, if an opportunity were to come along, just be ready. Because you never know. I can tell you that uh, firsthand. And speaking of Ann Richards, aren't we proud of Cecile Richards? Isn't she just isn't she just the best? I was going to ask you about Ann Richards, but we're almost out of time, and this is a really good audience question. Um, oh, we're now to audience questions? Yes, we are at audience right. questions. We, have, we are almost to the end of the talk, but um, <laughs> here in okay. Texas, our speaker is elected by a coalition of moderate Republicans and Democrats. Would you and really? your caucus consider this approach to avoid having an even more conservative speaker? And I will caveat it. Joaquin Castro made a similar point to my colleague, Amon, and so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this. I think in our caucus there is interest uh, and support. Uh, 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 there's an openness uh, to a um, bipartisan approach to this. Yeah. Could you but, imagine you would vote for a Republican? Do you want him to be totally destroyed in his caucus if I mentioned who I thought would be good? <laughs> Yes. the end of him. Please tell us. <laughs> no. Now, it's up to them to make their decisions as to how they go forward. I don't think there was any question in anybody's mind that if they uh, took a vote to unseat the Speaker, that the House Democrats would not have let that happen. You know, in terms of declaring the Speakership vacant, the seat vacant, that's the term of art. We would never allow that to happen. But we didn't get that chance because he stepped aside. And aren't we proud of Joaquin Castro and all of our members, all our members from here? Mark Vesey, and uh, I know a lot of them have some UT connections. As, as mentioned, Eddie Bernice and Sheila Jackson Lee, and Al Green, and Gene Green, and Mark Vesey, and, and Lloyd Doggett from this neighborhood, and um, Beto, Beto O'Rourke, and, and the list goes on of uh, Philemon Vela down south, Ruben Hinojosa. We have a beautifully diverse uh, delegation uh, from Texas. We want it to be more so, that is to say, more so because of the impact uh, uh, on the Congress. Why doesn't Paul Ryan want the job? What's so bad about being speaker? Uh, I, first of all, I don't know that he doesn't want the job. Uh, second of all, I think everybody wants the job. They don't know if they have the votes. And I, I, he may have the same attitude as our speaker, John Boehner, had, which was, I cannot cater to one-fourth of our caucus, which is you know, one-twelfth of, of the Congress, uh, to shut down government on, uh, every other day. So I, I don't know that he doesn't want it. They all want it. It's a question of if they can get the votes, because it is awesome power in the office of the speaker. I know. <laughs> yeah, but it is, again, the, the three branches of the president, the speaker, president and vice president, but 
the Speaker and the Supreme Court. And this, the Speaker, is uh, the constitutional head of, of the Congress. So it is, they all want it. But it's a question of having the votes. And if you are too moderate, and you, which would probably be more of a reflection of the population of our country, then you can't get the other votes. And if you're too much over there, then you can't get my So this is where they're, I, I, I don't know what the experience is in Texas that you have some kind of a coalition speakership. No. So the Tea Party has not been able to um, defeat the moderate Republican. And so uh, he is, there, Rep Democrats have much more power in the state legislature than mm -hmm. you would normally expect. And so um, it's a very, and it's where uh, Congressman Castro and Congressman BC came up and yeah, Congressman they, Diego. Yeah. Um, so, so the, I mean, my price isn't too high. Comprehensive immigration reform, background checks on uh, 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 for gun safety, civil rights bill. You know, I have a few things that I might be interested in talking about. <laughs> in addition, in addition to the full faith and credit of the United States of America, transportation bill, a, a, a um, again the, the bills that we talked about, keeping government open. No, we'll see. We'll all see. We'll find out in a matter of time what's happening on the Republican caucus and whether Joe Biden is running for president. <laughs> How can Republican members be convinced to work with Democrats to legislate gun control laws such as closing background check loopholes at gun shows? You keep asking me questions about the Republicans. Let me talk to you about the These Democrats. are audience questions. Oh, so okay. This is well, an audience on that question. Score, on that score, uh, since it's an audience question, um, we have the votes to pass these bills. It's just a question. We can pass an immigration bill. We can pass a gun violence bill, background check bill. 90% of the public supports the background check. Like 80% of Republicans, a large number of NRA members, support the background check bill. And Voting Rights Act, when we passed it earlier, the bill that the Supreme Court was judging, over 400 members of the House voted for it, and it passed unanimously in the Senate. So all we need is for these bills to be brought up. And I wish the speaker had done so, but he was constrained by his caucus, but they went too far when they said, shut government down. But since you asked about the gun bill, uh, understanding the campus carry legislation, it's interesting to me that it takes effect August 1st, 2016, the 50th anniversary of the first mass school shooting right here at UT, at UT. People can pass what laws they do, but it is all the more reason to have background checks. It's all the more reason to have <laughs> And to follow up on that, you're the grandmother of Texans. If you get a phone call from your, one of your grandchildren that says, I'm going to the University of Texas or I'm going to Texas A&M with this new law, what, not as Nancy Pelosi leader, but as Nancy Pelosi grandmother, what goes through your mind? Or does that make you nervous with the gun laws? Well, they have told me that they would aspire to go to UT. I'm not sure about Texas A&M yet, but both are. <laughs> <laughs> I had fun there at the Georgia Her Herbert Walker Bush uh, uh, event. Uh, no, that, that they, look, it's, any parents in the audience? Any grandparents in the audience? Whatever they want to do, you know, we, I would support. Uh, I don't think the, uh, the campus carry would affect what I might say to them about going to school. It's about their own aspirations. They would be old enough to understand uh, what that is. What I am interested in, what overwhelming number of faculty members here have said, uh, uh, and it's, it's a remarkable and courageous stand that so many people at uh, UT Austin have spoken out against the, uh, the legislation. But I, I, I um, as far as my grandchildren are concerned, they're going to do what they're going to do. You know what I mean, parents and grandparents? <laughs> and we don't have that much influence over it. And I respect that. So this is a really good audience question. 
It's from Rebecca Bell Methian, a candidate for the Texas State Board of Education District 5. If Hillary Clinton becomes president, how will her way of dealing with Congress differ from President Obama's? Oh, but let me preface my answer to that by saying, you know, I have been, says she immodestly, as was recognized earlier, the highest ranking woman in American history as the Speaker of the House. I am so eager to relinquish that title. <laughs> Wouldn't it be exciting? Wouldn't it be exciting? Well, I, I think part of that will depend on the attitude of the Congress toward the president. Uh, as, as I worked very closely with President Bush on a number of issues, disagreed with him on privatizing Social Security, disagreed with him on the war in Iraq, but we passed the biggest uh, energy bill in the history of our country, working together, compromising uh, important issues that related to poor children, issues that related to PEPFAR. But we have a long list of things that we did together. Just because we disagreed on some things didn't mean we couldn't cooperate on others. And so it was, and then when the president became president, Obama became president, we had some things to do, like make sure that uh, health care was a, a a right, not a privilege in our country. Lily Ledbetter repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, a long list of, of uh, reforming Wall Street and the rest. So when we lost the majority and uh, the first sentence that practically came out of the mouth of the Republicans was, our purpose is to be sure that the president does not succeed, was so stunning. You know, you know, whether you agree or disagree with the president, it's a resource to you to hopefully make some progress for the American people. It's, it's the office of the president. The, um, there are reasons why they were that way with President Obama that I won't go into right now. But for a woman, it could even be worse. That's why it's really important that in the debate in the election, the public makes its views known, its voices heard. I would hope that that would channel itself into a vote for a Democratic Congress. But whether it does or not, that it is a voice of the country saying, we want cooperation, uh, we want you to respect public sentiment on gun laws, immigration, voting rights, those kind of things. We want uh, uh, public policies that grow the economy in a way that strengthens paychecks. And these things are not inconsistent with uh, harmonizing with some of the Republican views on these subjects. But I would hope that the message that comes out of the next election is uh, that we do not want obstruction of the president. From her perspective, no, I wish she would be different. Um, I think the president gets a little bit of a rap for um, how he deals with Congress. He deals very well with Congress. But Congress doesn't deal very well with him in return, in, in, in terms of the Republicans. The, um, he's very respectful. He's not particularly partisan, as a matter of fact. They like to paint him that way, but he isn't. The, uh, Hillary Clinton's experience, in my view, should she become the president of the United States, and we have great candidates in the Democratic field, but should we have this historic opportunity to elect a woman president of the United States, how wonderful that would be. She knows the territory. She knows the members. She, she, um, I think she has, um, I don't, I think that she would have a, a closer rapport. I, that is not to imply that the president doesn't. I just say that we've just all known each other for a very long time. And we can save a little time in terms of understanding each other's motivation and who is capable of what courage on any given on any given day. Uh, but they're both very effective people. Everybody has their own approach. That is not to say one is better than the other. But it's a bigger issue than a president dealing with Congress. It's an issue of Congress rec recognizing what President Lincoln said. Public sentiment is everything. With it, you can accomplish almost anything. Without it, nothing. And so the public sentiment for cooperation, the public sentiment for protecting, our, you know, for gun safety, some of these issues which can be taken off the table, 
right away. We have results. We have solutions that are bipartisan, that have been voted for by Democrats and Republicans, just not enough and not in both houses. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of what happens next depends not necessarily on interpersonal relationships as much as the public sentiment for cooperation. Well, I heard the chimes at the tower ring, and that means our session is over. So uh, I cannot say thank you enough for coming down, Madam Leader, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed your trip to Texas. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much.